Blog Talk Radio. You've heard about it. You've read about it. You've talked about it. And now, you've found it. This is Truth About Trucking Live on Blog Talk Radio, the largest radio social network in the world. With your host, Alan Smith, a veteran of OTR trucking, business entrepreneur, and the most recognized name for assisting CDL students and new graduates. It's time to shut down that big rig, sit back, and come join the conversation. Truth About Trucking Live begins right now. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the show. Today is Thursday, December 8, 2011. appreciate you tuning in as we head into the holidays. Christmas right around the corner. And then before you know it, 2012, a brand new year as we head into our fourth year on Blog Talk Radio, with uh, 2012 certainly to bring new challenges to America's professional truckers as the, the debate on EOBRs continue and new HOS rules to be announced shortly, and of course, the continual progress of the cross-border issue. So 2012 should be a very interesting year for the U.S. trucking industry as well as for the millions of truck drivers as they face new regulations in what is already an over-regulated industry. Another thing to look for is the possibility of tougher screening regulations for sleep apnea. Just yesterday, on December 7th, advisors to the FMCSA recommended that they toughen up on their approach to handling the sleep apnea disorder. The two panels, the MCSAC, the Motor Carrier Safety Advisory Committee, And the Medical Review Board suggested to the FMCSA that they should tell DOT medical examiners that drivers with a BMI of 35 or more must be evaluated for sleep apnea. A uh, professor of sleep medicine from Harvard Medical School, a Charles Ziesler, says that the crash risk for a driver with sleep apnea is 242% greater than a driver without. So all of you drivers with a BMI of 35 and over, regardless of your millions of safe miles driven, uh, better start eating broccoli and carrots and sipping on water because more safety regulations could be coming your way in 2012. If you'd like to be a part of the show, our number is 347-826-9170, and I'll pass it on over to Donna for this week's announcements. Donna? Hi, good evening everyone. Um, I just want to say that the Motor Carrier Safety Advisory Committee uh, this week, um, actually they wrapped up uh, their work on the recommendations to the Federal Motor Carrier Safety Administration on the technical uh, aspects of the pending electronic onboard recorder that um, Alan was just speaking about. Um, If you remember, in its last ruling last August, the U.S. Court of Appeals uh, for the Seventh Circuit vacated that rule and sent it back to the FMCSA for review, uh, saying that it does not do enough to prevent harassment of drivers. So it was back to the drawing board. Uh, There was a meeting, however, um, with uh, with Mixac over um, in Arlington on Monday. That was the 5th. And uh, our own Fred Schaffner uh, went there, uh, along with um, 
a friend of his, another owner operator, to speak up. And by the way, we're all we're all allowed to go to these public meetings, so I think I think this should really set uh, an example uh, for all of us to be there. Um, maybe not all together, but uh, you know, to to make the attempt to go to these meetings. You can listen to what Fred said to the committee on uh, Ask the Trucker. There's a recording on there uh, of how he addressed it. Um, Fred, Fred's been a colleague and a friend. He's a driver advocate, uh, an ex-owner operator. He also attended the truck driver convention where he, he did address the panel regarding the rulemaking process and the need for more drivers to get involved. And it seems like, like they are because a lot of people are talking how they're going to be going to the next meeting. Um, anyway, so Fred stood up and he really made quite a powerful statement if you listen to this audio uh, at the FMCSA Advisory Committee stating that to advise on a rule that's been vacated by the courts uh, could actually be contemptuous um, and that it needed to go back to the regulatory committee. And uh, anyway, so it needs to go back to the committee, which it is, uh, so that they can actually either create a new rule or um, have an amendment to the rule. So anyway, that that'll be putting that on hold for a while. Um, as as Rich Wilson says, you know, if 13 million truck drivers start to speak up, just like this, people will listen. And you know, Fred said that he really feels the FMCSA, their hearts in the right place. Um, it's it's just that it's difficult when you you're not in the truck and you don't really understand what's going on and what can go on as far as um harassment issues because he says this is going to EOBRs is actually going to decrease safety you combine EOBRs with the um hours of service regulations and people wanting to get freight there and now they're really going to be stressed to get it there and you could really have big problems so it's really great because they are listening and they seemed very interested in what Fred had to say. Um, Fred did end it that, um, oh, yeah, that, that he feels that this could actually cause more harassment, which, you know, we totally agree. We write about that all the time. Uh, another thing, as part of a, a press release by the Truck Safety Coalition, the TSA, um, uh, Ann Farrell revealed that the initial 2010 data on fatal truck crashes actually increased and that they're questioning the data by the ATA that there has been a decrease. Well, from 2009, we've had the lowest uh, fatality, truck crash fatality, I believe, since 1949. I think that I read that just a few minutes ago. Anyway, um, she did release the information during her testimony on the pending truck driver hours of service reform before the House Oversight and Government Reform Subcommittee on Wednesday, November 30th. There's a problem with the data, though. It says that there's an increase in fatal truck crashes. Uh, unfortunately, it doesn't say whose fault that is. And if you go by the past, and it's probably no different than now, 80% of fatal truck crashes are the fault of the non-commercial vehicle. And... Th- you would think that that would be included in that data, and it was not. So um, what do you do about that? Well, here's some statistics. 
that we found uh, are the, on truck accidents. There's estimated 41 to 45,000 traffic deaths that occur every year. Fewer than 9% of those deaths involve commercial vehicles. More than 80% of those accidents are the fault of the non-commercial driver. Of those deaths related, only 4% of trucks are fatigue-related. And here's an interesting fact. Um, the FMCSA actually puts truck driver fatigue very low on the list. So to correlate you know, all this together in HOS, um, it, it really doesn't make any sense. But if you do want to take truck driver fatigue uh, into account, uh, here's some reasons that drivers have truck driver fatigue. Lack of adequate truck parking. Dispatchers pushing drivers to, to drive when they say they're either ill or tired. Shippers and receivers holding drivers up at docks for hours, cutting into their rest time. Dispatch waking drivers up via Qualcomm, asking questions, failing to respect and abide the HOS regulations. Retaliation tactics from carriers if the driver states that he or she is too fatigued to drive. Um, but this was a topic, by the way, that um, Paul Taylor discussed over at the Truck Driver Convention, what to do uh, with your rights. Uh, so really, these statistics are going to have to um, look into this. I know the ATA responded pretty much the same way, that, that more or less you're, they're going to have to you know, do something with the data. Uh, it's very vague and, and really not complete. So... There's the EOBR and the HOS up to date. Um, and finally, you know, I just want to mention that um, this is a very joyous time for year for, for many, many people. But unfortunately, it can be a very difficult time for many, especially those who have either lost loved ones recently, um, they're alone in nursing homes, or they live alone, uh, or those in need, they're in shelters, they're hungry. They've lost their jobs. I mean, times are tough right now. So as joyous as it is, it is for many, it's um, very difficult for, for many also. So let, let's just not forget those who are experiencing um, these difficult times. So I don't know. when. Sometimes when you're out, if you see somebody, just a, a smile or a kind word it can really help those who are, who are having those difficult times, whatever that, that is. Also, this is a time um, in the shelters, in the food pantries. If if we could just donate five dollars to your local shelter, um, can you imagine the impact that would be? I know ours is always asking. They'll have actual drives. They'll go to the grocery stores and have people, you know, ask them, "Can you please buy this and bring it out?" And you'd be surprised um, how many people. I mean, how we all just go in and, you know, what do you need and, and bring it out there. And and it doesn't take much, you know, $5 a person, and it could really help. Um, the other thing, too, is I know a lot of people this time of year go to the nursing homes and just spend a half an hour and maybe visit a couple of people, uh, people that, you know, they don't have their family coming down and, and they're lonely. And, and I think these are these are things that we can do Christmas is, Everybody says, oh, it's so commercial, it's this and that. Well, we can all make it not commercial and just do some nice, um, some kind deeds in life. And, and it's really easy, you know, $5, a smile, a kind word, a visit, 
it's it's really pretty easy and it and it's really a good feeling. Anyway, um I just wanted to say that and um I do hope everybody has a a wonderful and merry Christmas. And well, we'll have one more show next week, so I get to talk to everybody again. But that's it, Alan. Okay. Well, we have a great show for you this evening. Uh, our guest is Kyla Lieberg, co-founder of the Truckers Against Trafficking organization. And she is also the author of the book, My Life Crazy, available at Amazon.com and through her publisher, Tate Publishing and Enterprises. And we have both of those links up for you within the show's description. And i got to tell you, it's really a great book. It details her two-year missionary work in El Salvador, which ended up taking her inside the lifestyle of the two most dangerous gangs of El Salvador, with one of those gangs having been called the most dangerous gang in America. And I'll tell you right now, in my opinion, Kyla Lieberg is very lucky to be alive today. That's my take on it, and I'll see how she feels about that as we talk more about My Life Crazy which would make for a great holiday gift for that trucker out on the road. And even though trucking and truck drivers and perhaps even tr human trafficking was the furthest thing from her mind in 1996 to 1998 while she was in El Salvador, we'll talk about how her own experiences and personal convictions eventually led her, maybe, I guess, down the path in co-founding Truckers Against Trafficking. Our number three four seven eight two six nine one seven zero. Kyla Lieberg on My Life Crazy, coming up on Truth About Trucking Live. There's a lot of copycats out there, but you know, there's only one. Truth About Trucking Live. Don't go anywhere. Alan will be right back. Hollered, Big John's coming, save yourself and run. Don't hesitate, contemplate, save yourself and don't slow down. Don't grab your stuff, ain't time enough. Big John's coming to town. Big John's coming to town. Alan Smith here with Truth About Trucking Live and AssetTrucker.com with an important message for owner operators and fleet owners. Hot John Incorporated is a company that makes the Dynasys APU, and if you're considering an auxiliary power unit for your truck but thought you just couldn't afford it, you need to talk to the Dynasys guys about their all-new financing program. The Dynasys APU saves fuel and provides AC, heating, plug-in power, all of those comfort necessities you deserve when you have to shut down for your mandatory break. It's definitely the smart way to be comfortable and save money. Their finance program is designed to make your monthly payment nearly half of what you're spending on fuel with their goal of making APUs available for every hardworking driver. They realize that times are tough and that credit is hard to come by, so they offer four credit plans giving all owner-operators and fleet owners a guaranteed financing opportunity. They can even get you hooked up with grants that can cover APU costs as well. Give them a call at 1-800-289-8282. Toll-free 1-800-289-8282 or just Google search Dynasys APU. Visit them online at hotjohn.com. That's H-O-D-Y-O-N.com. The Dynasys APU, the best solution to engine idling. 
Hey drivers, how many times have you finally decided to take a break from the sleep or follow the signs of that hotel just up the road and when you got there, they didn't have the parking space for a big 18-wheeler? Well, if you're like me, it's happened more than once. Aggravating, isn't it? Well, it doesn't have to be that way anymore. Hotels for Truckers.org was created by a trucker for truckers and is the most comprised database for hotels across the country which offer parking space for commercial vehicles. No longer take a chance of whether or not that long-awaited hotel break will accommodate your big rig. Know for certain that you'll be able to get in where you can fit in. Choose from thousands of trucker-friendly hotels stretching across the nation, and you can also get great discount and specials through HotelsForTruckers.org. Included in their extensive database are the addresses, phone numbers, and direct web links to the hotels. And if you use a hotel only one time a year, you can take advantage of the $10 annual membership fee, which allows easy access to view hotels that offer additional CDL trucker discounts, nationwide hotel chain discounts, and even room coupon specials. As a professional driver, you have enough stress to deal with out on the road, so have the peace of mind knowing that the hotel you choose will have all the driver amenities that you need. Hotelsfortruckers.org, guaranteed in making sure you get in where you fit in. That's Hotels, the number four, truckers.org. This is Truth About Trucking Live with Alan Smith. To be a part of the program, call in now at 347-826-9170. Skype users can call in by clicking on the Skype button on our show page. To be a sponsor of the show, email Donna at info at truthabouttrucking.com. Now, back to the show. All right, welcome back to the show. Our lines are filling up with listeners. Appreciate you tuning in. I see you from Illinois, Georgia, Wisconsin, Ohio, West Virginia, Colorado, Texas, Pennsylvania, New York, Florida, all just all over. Appreciate you being here. Uh, our guest, Kyla Lieberg, co-founder of TruckersAgainstTrafficking.org, and we're going to discuss her book for a while, My Life Crazy, A Gringa's Life with the Salvadoran Gangs. Kyla, welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me. How have you been? I've been really good. How have you guys been? Uh, we're hanging in there. Um, <laughs> you know, listen, I, I, I really enjoyed your book. It takes you into another world of, uh, you know, the world of El Salvador, its people, the culture. It's it's very well written, and, and I, I found myself being able to even taste and smell the surroundings of the land and, and hear the noise and confusion that the people of the country call home every day from from the um, the coconut and mangoes and to the rice and beans and pupusas and sweet bread, I mean just all the beauty and wonderment of this history uh, enriched country and and yet at the same time you write about you know it's mixed with the odors of of uh, urine and you know and and other things I won't say but so so let me ask you this we'll start off with why why your love so much for El Salvador how where did that come from. Well, when I was in college, I started taking Latin American political courses, and I decided I had always sort of had an adventuring spirit growing up, and I knew I wanted to live outside of the United States for a while. So once I took those classes, I pulled out a map, and I literally sat down and started looking at different countries in Latin America. And when I landed on El Salvador, I said, El Salvador, that's where I'm supposed to be. I had this strange peace come over me when I thought about that country 
And so then I just started studying everything about El Salvador, the politics, the religion, sort of the strife down there during their civil war, U.S. intervention in El Salvador, et cetera. And so I just wanted to go. Like I had learned as much as I could, except for the language. That came later. Um, but I just wanted to go down there and see it. So, And then once I got there, I totally fell in love with the country. It's a strong, strong, surviving, fighting people, and I respect that. Well, yeah, I mean, it, it's just uh, it, it, it was just the book. I like I love how it was written because you just never you never knew what you were going to read next. I mean, there's so many stories involved in this, but I mean, um, and we'll get into them a little bit later. But I, I mean, was there had to be a time? I know there was a time uh, when you thought to yourself. Uh, what in the world am I doing here, or, or am I wrong? No, I think I had moments where I just felt either completely out of place or that I was making no difference and that I didn't really quite fit. But really, I don't know. I felt pretty at home in the chaos of El Salvador. I don't know if that's just some weird part of my personality. I really loved the loudness and the craziness and just sort of the, I don't know, sort of the lack of pretense of El Salvador. I appreciate it. It's probably why I can work with high school students with very little problem because it's the same type of chaos and loudness and craziness. Mm-hmm. Hi, Kyla. This is Donna. How are you? I'm fine. How are you doing? Oh, pretty good. Pretty good. Um, yeah, it's it's uh, quite an amazing story. I do have a question for you. When you went to visit the first time, is that when you uh, decided to do the missionary work, or did you go back to to do no, that? The first time I went down there was a two-year commitment as a missionary. So oh. I had not visited El Salvador before making that commitment to live there for two wow. years. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So when I went, I had my bags packed. Like I was, I was gonna stay. And was it, was it what you expected, or did it pretty much slap you in the face? It did both. Um, there were certain aspects that I completely expected. I expected the poverty. I expected um, sort of the rundown nature of a country in reconstruction after a civil war. I mean, the civil war lasted 12 years, so they were in their reconstruction period when I lived there. So I had expected those things. I did not know that they had a gang problem when I went down there. I did not expect to see people all tattooed up. I did not um, expect to see just sort of the level of violence. Like, I knew there was violence, but I guess I had um, compartmentalized that to believe that, well, that's mostly over because of the Civil War. And they entered, like, a really, really violent time post-war uh, because of the gangs starting up and cropping up down there. And you pretty much were like an open target. I mean, you, you know, you didn't appear like them. You... Were different. I mean, from from what I get, you know, you had to be pretty pretty careful, like everywhere you walked, and you know, and like that. Well, Did you expect I that? The difference of being an American female down there actually was very helpful um, in the beginning. I was 23 
when I was down there, and I was sort of the, oh, look at the gringo walking by. You know, oh, look at her. Who's that? And so they, you know, I would say 95% of my experiences with the Salvadoran people was very welcoming, very accepting. They were very patient with me as I was trying to learn Spanish, and I would mess up all the time. There were about, you know, 5% of the two years down there. I mean, I definitely had some hostility and people that were mad um, that I was in their country, people that were, um, you know, openly hostile, cussing at me. I had some things thrown at me a few times. Um, But overall, you know, they were very welcoming of me. And and the gang, gang members and the bus drivers who I worked with, I think there was more of a level of shock in the years that I lived down there. There was sort of a level of shock that I was speaking to them. Because El Salvador is very class-oriented. If you are educated and have a college degree, you don't associate really with people who don't. And if you're a professional, you do not really associate with the people who are not a professional working, like white collar. Um, And there's sort of that cutoff point socially. So the fact that I was an educated American and I was hanging out with what was termed, you know, sort of the scum of the Salvadoran society, um, I didn't see them that way, but that's how they were sort of viewed. I so it's almost sort of like them, yeah. It, it's well, it, it's almost like um, the the people who are educated and and higher up on the ladder, so to speak, really um, don't have a gratitude. Like they don't see themselves as just you know human beings, but rather um, a step above everybody else. Is is that true? Definitely there is that, and I think we have that here in the United States, too, when, you know, certain people reach a certain status, they look down on on others. That was just, I think, because there's less wealthy people in El Salvador percentage-wise, uh-huh, right. I think right. that it's more... Um, more noticeable. Yeah, more noticeable, definitely, yeah. Yeah, I can, yeah, okay, I see. Well, look, I mean, I, I read the book, and um, so... Not going to give away too much, um, you know. The main the main storyline, you know, with Gatto, you know, I I want people to read the book, but I want to touch on some things because um, it's not as mild as uh, it may be uh, sounding right now to our listeners and a listener from uh, from Michigan. Welcome to the show. But look, let me just get right into the nitty gritty of this book because that's what's so fascinating about it, about the, the the experiences that you actually felt and you know and even though you said there was 5% of the people that were uh you know maybe hostile towards you you were among that 5% so often during your day i mean you know I'll, I'll the example of the day in the park when the man came charging at you with his fist raised and cursing at you and saying, Gringa, get out. And uh, the two people that just happened to pull him away at the last minute, uh, he was going to hurt you. There's no doubt right. in my mind, right? Right. No, he, yeah, he was headed that way for sure. Yeah, so, and and you saw, you saw beatings and you saw stabbings and, uh, you knew a murder was about to or was taking place, but you could do nothing about it for the safety of your own life. And you write about, you know, several times a sickening feeling in your stomach. So, I mean, could you accept the fact that, or how could you, how did you accept the fact that that was just 
a, a part of the way of life for, for some of these people. Well, I mean, the gangs definitely have their own street rules, and there is a brutality associated with that that is, you know, substantial. I mean, it's it's an awful situation. Because I was hanging out in gang territory with gang members, I was obviously going to see more than if I had stayed, you know, in my own home and oh, away sure. from them. Um, so because I was in the parks and because I was on the streets with them, working with them or talking to them, sometimes I saw stuff that was just out of control. And then there were other times where I was just walking someplace and you'd see something going on. Um, What I will tell you is at least in the time, the the two years that I was down there, there was a beating that took place in front of me. I mean, it was only like two yards away from me when they beat down this kid. It was 18th Street to beat up this um, MS-13 Kid, the cops came running out, and all the gang members dispersed, including the MS-13 member. He wanted out of the park as fast as he could get. The cops looked right at me, and they just kept walking. They didn't really question anybody um, in the park that had witnessed it. So there's sort of, at least back then, and I can't speak for now, there was sort of this idea amongst law enforcement that if it was gang-on-gang violence, then what's the point of investigating? Like, if they kill each other, who cares, almost, to a certain degree? And so um, people ask me that a lot, that, you know, did I ever turn him in or report anything? I was never, ever once asked by a police officer. I was yelled at by police officers for hanging out with them and that I should hang out with the police more and not the gang members, but they never asked me anything ever specific to a crime or if, if I had seen anything. So I don't know. I don't know if they necessarily were too um, concerned. Right. What, what was exactly your goal um, being with the gang members? What, what was it you were trying to achieve? To get them uh, out of mm-hmm. I wanted them out of the gang. I wanted them to see, you know, in El Salvador there's, a system, and certainly the system had been in place for quite a number of years or or centuries, really, that the wealthy people sort of controlled everything and everybody else was almost just one step above slave level. Um, They were paid a subsistence living, sometimes just paid with food. Um, There were not a lot of opportunities. There was just a great sense of injustice against the vast majority of the people of El Salvador, which is why they rose up and tried to fight um, against those forces, because they wanted education, they wanted health care, they wanted just some basic humanity in their lives. And so what you ended up happening during the 12 years of the Civil War, about 500,000 Salvadorans moved to the United States of America because the violence was so bad. Those families, those parents ended up having to work two or three jobs to make ends meet, and their kids were thrown into American schools, and nobody was watching them when they got home. And gangs sort of adopted them off the streets of Los Angeles, basically, and said, we'll be sort of your family. Then they would be sent back. Their families would oftentimes send them back to El Salvador um, because they were worried about what they were doing in the U.S. They'd send them back to live with a grandma or an aunt or somebody like that. The kid felt displaced. They speak this English now. They have this sort of gangster mentality. And now all of a sudden they're back in El Salvador. And that's when they 
started the gangs in El Salvador because, once again, so many of the men had died. So many others were living in the United States. Um, there was just a sense sort of, of um, rejection and lack of opportunity. And so the gangs sort of gave them this sense of power in their lives, this sense of control in their lives. And I wanted them to see that there were alternatives to that lifestyle, that there were there was an opportunity for a future, even if their government was not necessarily for them, even if um, they would have a rougher time at, of it based on their past choices, that they could make a better life. Um, they would oftentimes say, well, society rejects me. If I get a tattoo, the schools will kick me out, which is true. Um, if I have a tattoo, I can't get a job in a lot of places, which was true. Um, I'm labeled as a criminal, and so the only friends I have are my gang my gangsters, my, my homies, and that's all I can do now, so I'm stuck with that. So I would try to just befriend them, um, get them to trust me. If they were put in jail, they started to call me before they'd call their homies. Um, if they were sick, they'd start to call me before their homeboys. Um, and it was just sort of this replacement strategy, if you will, um, to sort of get them to see that there was a life outside and people outside of the gang that did care about them, that did support them, that would help them along the right path. So that was really my goal with the gangsters was to, to get them out. Well, the um, well, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I, I would say that, uh, I mean, you went there for missionary work, but not necessarily within gangs. That's just how... <laughs> The circumstances right. led you, right? Right, right. I. I mean, with with a with a you know the twenty one bus, and you know Gatto working there, and how all that came about, and everybody listening, you're just gonna have to read the book to know what we're talking about. But you, that's just kind of how the path led you. You you ended up in the gangs. No, I I mean the only people that freaked me out in El Salvador were the bus drivers. Yeah. They were terrifying. Yeah, um, that's what you said. You were uh, you were. They, they're the ones who you feared the most. Yeah, I did not like them, especially the ones in my town. They creeped me out. They made me really mad. Then they became, like, my best friends as time went on, but they right. freaked me out. And then once I was uh, taking coffee to them, you know, I met gang members that worked for the bus line. And, yeah, it was just this sort of crazy journey that I was on. And then from the gang members, I met glue sniffers on the street in those parks that, uh, you know, those, like, little abandoned kids and that right. they needed food. And so, yeah, I mean, definitely God leading me down where I was supposed to be and what I was supposed to be doing did not go there with that agenda, but that is definitely what happened, which is why I think I'm alive, um, because I didn't just walk into any gang territory. I always felt like I was there by invitation through some weird meeting that I had had, you know, with a gang member in a Wendy's restaurant, and then I get invited into that clique. Um, and so there was some built-in protection there because the gang itself had invited me in. Um, right. Things of that nature. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, obviously you had a uh, – you you earned their trust and which uh, your protection actually came from the gangs. But what's amazing is – I mean, you were surrounded by people, and there's a lot of stories. A lot of stories in this book. I mean, you know, uh, 
story right off the head of my head. I remember um, you the, one of your first bus trips, and uh, bus and a car got in a ram, ramming fight, and you know bus driver pulls a gun, and you're crouching behind behind the seat. So you got to read the book to, to hear all this. But what's amazing is you were surrounded by people with names like Ghost and Hammer and Snake and Killer. And uh, the MS-13 gang originated in L.A., if I'm right, and you met OGs, which stand for Original Gang Members. And, and So what do you contribute to the fact that these uh, dangerous and powerful gang members, as well as all the other dangers that lied around you, accepted a young, blonde, blue-eyed American girl into their own private circle? I mean, uh, does that, I... that, that still has to amaze you sometimes. It does. I mean, certainly there was a bit of naivete on my part. Um, I had never really hung out with gang members. I'm a private school, high school graduate. Um, I didn't hang out with gang members. And so when I first met them, to me, they just seemed like, you know, high school students, maybe a little bit older. What, they were they? I mean, they didn't seem, you know, you talk to them, they didn't seem violent. They just seemed like everybody right. else. Right. They looked sort of normal. They seemed just like your typical people. Um, then, you know, you'd hear stories later. I mean, I will tell you that I started having nightmares <laughs> eight years after I was back home. I watched a video, a documentary about 18th Street, with a, it was 18 with a bullet by PBS. And one of the gang members I hung out with all the time was one of the subject people of that documentary. And oh, in wow. the course of the documentary, he killed three people in the course of them filming this documentary. Wow. And I, I was like just thinking back to how much time I had spent with him. And, you know, when I spent time with him or played basketball with him or had – lunch with him or whatever, he, I knew he was bad, I knew he had killed, I knew that, but it was definitely more like a in-my-brain thing, um, that sort of freaked me out, I'm not going to lie, and then I just, I think my mind just started to flash and process just how many times, you know, I was in probably really dangerous circumstances and in really bad areas, and Without getting too religious on your show, I mean, honestly, I will tell you, I believe the reason why I am alive is because I was doing what God had told me to do, and I was I was within the bounds of that. Like, I, there is no reason that MS-13 did not kill me for hanging out with 18th Street, or 18th Street did not kill me for hanging out with MS-13 other than that. I mean, there is, there well, is no yeah. logical explanation. I totally, I totally believe that. Yeah, I mean that that's my point and that's what I want to get across really importantly in this show is I mean not only how great of a book this is. I mean, I tell you, I sat down, I tried I tried I said I've got to read this book, you know, I've got a show, I got to read the book and I was just so busy with work and everything else and I thought, okay, well on my day off, you know, I'll read a chapter or two, then I'll do some work and then I'll read another chapter or two and I'll do some work and I'll get it done. I sat down and five hours later, I was done. I mean, I couldn't put the thing down. So, and and that's what's so fascinating that, it, and and you were told that by MS13 member right. that you right. have to choose, or you know, it can't be both ways. But yet, 
<laughs> and you can get religious on the show. You know, this is all about faith. I mean, the faith guide, guided you through all this. But that's what I think amazes me most is that you were involved with two rival gangs, the most dangerous and ri- powerful gangs in El Salvador, on both sides, and you got away with it. Right. Right. That's amazing. Um, I, I just want to, I'm just curious, uh, Kyla, um, and, and maybe it's me being naive, but what what is the purpose of the gangs? What what is what do they kill for? I mean, they don't they don't kill for money. They don't steal. What is their motive? Well, there is an element of that for sure. I mean, they have drug trade and they have um, they robbery. They, oh, okay. Yeah, and they extort. Um, they shake down bus drivers for um, rent, if you will, businesses and homes, whatever territory they control. They basically shake down rent, sort of like the mob used to do um, here in this country in the 20s. It's sort of the um, controlling of the neighborhoods. If you want your business to stay open, if you don't want to die, you'll pay us. And they're very, they're very forceful with their threats. I mean, if they say you owe us, and they'll kill over a dollar. If you don't pay them that dollar, if you say, well, I just paid down there, I really did, they'll shoot them in the head. I mean, there was a, a rash of bus driver murders by gang members. They walk up in broad daylight, walk up, shoot them in the head, and walk away. So there is an element of the money aspect. Um, but when I was first down there and the gangs were just starting to crop up and take over, it was a pride issue, it was a territory issue, and once again, I cannot stress enough, when you have been deprived of all basic opportunity and justice and a way up in life, that becomes your dignity. That becomes their pride. They would always say to me, me dan el respeto. They're giving me respect. They respect me. And I'm like, that's not respect. I said, they fear you. They're, they fear what you're going to do. And they're like, that's respect enough for me. Because they felt so disrespected in society by their families many times, by um, the wealthy, by those who had more than them, that this was their sense of power and this was their sense of respect. And so they were willing to kill for that after a period of time. And then, you know, the upper echelons of the gang, definitely, um, it's definitely more organized crime. There's kidnappings and political kidnappings, and there's uh, major drug trade. MS-13, I'm sure 18th Street as well, but we have documented cases of MS-13 trafficking human beings. Um, So uh, there's um, automobile rackets where they steal the cars and then ship them down and sell them in El Salvador. Um, So they're definitely involved in every criminal aspect. And they're all over the whole world. They're the world's most dangerous gang, MS-13 is. They're in, gosh, I want to say 30 countries, but I'm not sure. Wow. Yeah, they originated in L.A., correct? Correct, correct. Well, I mean, oh, go ahead. The Mexican gangs were picking on the Salvadoran immigrants, so the Salvadorans formed their own gang to fight back. And now MS-13, they take pretty much anybody into their ranks if they can trust them, so it's not just Salvadoran anymore. Mm-hmm. Well, the Civil War there, if I remember correctly, it, it was between 1980 and 92? Correct. And... Um, 
I think I remember like 75,000 people were killed. But you, you also came across, uh, um, I guess, many many people that had served in the Civil War uh, begging on the streets uh, with no legs, no arms. Uh, many of them, um, you know, obviously with, uh, you know, uh, mental problems and things. And, I mean, the book makes you feel every emotion. I mean, there was humor, there was anger, disappointment, frustration, fear. But, but the biggest of all for me was uh, was sadness. And and even though you had wonderful accomplishments, because you were able to bring several of the members to leave the gang and start a better life, at least the best they could in that in that country. But the intense poverty and the and the children of the streets, the the uh, forgotten people, so to speak. I mean, for example. Um, uh, five-year-old children such as Carlos, uh, filthy, hungry, alone, and forgotten on the streets of El Salvador. H- how were you able to maintain your own personal strength to get through the the horrible sights and sounds of this unimaginable poverty that these people live through every day of their lives? Well, I mean, I definitely cried a lot. Um, and then there were some times where I would feel totally overwhelmed um, that, there was nothing that I could do, that what I was doing was not even a drop in the bucket, and so what was the point? Um, There were times when I just did not even want to come out of my room. I just wanted to stay where I was living, or I'd go to see a movie in English with Spanish subtitles, and I would just sit in there just to sort of zone out and forget about where I was because I didn't see – I felt helpless, Um, but what I chose to focus on was, again, that incredible strength, that survival spirit, that ability to find the good in their circumstances. I mean, I'm not saying Salvadoran people don't feel jealousy or envy or ingratitude or any of that, because, of course, they do their human just like all of us. But I will tell you that they find the moments of joy so much faster than we tend to in this country because it's almost necessary to do that. Uh, And so even with those kids, you'd see those kids, and the glue sniffers, there were lots of them, and um, you'd see those kids, and they would get so excited over an ice cream cone. Or if you just, you know, I would do like the fishy face where you like suck in your cheeks and twist your lips. And so they would try to do that, and we'd, like, fake an airplane ride to the – and they were like, where do we want to go? Let's go to Hawaii. Okay, we're all going to Hawaii. And they would just play and laugh and just have that moment of reprieve like kids should have. Um, and you just I, – I just had to make a choice to be as happy as I could to give as much as I could of myself of – the money that I had, um, of the time that I had, and then look at the positive of their lives versus focusing on what I couldn't change. Um, and and I think that's how I sort of survived it. But it, there were definitely days where I was truly overwhelmed by it all. Well, that was one of the game, games you were just talking about. That was one of the games you were playing at uh, Mama's house. Right, yes. yes. Yeah. Yeah, that was a good story. I mean, there's a lot of um I mean, there's a lot of sadness in the story when you, you know t- when you study these people and 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 the poverty 
but there's um, a lot a lot of happiness too, a lot of good things. I mean, what what really struck me was, I mean, the main character of the book, Gatto. Uh, I mean, tough, tough, tough dude, and and you know, his life came about because of his of his home, the way life was at home for him, but at the same time. However tough these guys were, and I mean, and 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 you know, they carried out beatings and stabbings and killings. I mean, they were bad dudes. But what what also you bring about through the book is really when you when you could sit down with them one on one, and and they would open up and talk to you. They really just wanted to be loved. Right. Absolutely. And that that was what was just an amazing part that you get through this book and and again you you did get how many did you get out of the game did you keep a, a trap it's not a ton of them i would say only about five left left the gang totally out that didn't go back but that's um, an amazing accomplishment you know i i feel like you know, obviously, I would have had would have loved to have bigger numbers. I would have loved to see all of the ones that said they were going to leave actually stay out instead of get back in it. I mean, we had some stations sure. when they'd get out, and then they next thing you heard, they were in jail for murder for twenty five years, and you're just like, okay. Um, but I really feel like I was there for Gato more than anybody else, and right. You know, he was my heart down there for sure, and his right. story sort of encompasses. I mean, I, I put in all those other gang stories, but his story really, I would say, is the story of so many of those kids down there that get sucked up into this gang life, that get pulled in, and they're lost souls who are desperate for acceptance and desperate for respect and desperate to sort of live the life that they were meant to live and they do not have a way to do that and I don't know I well you know like you say in your book though you you, you even said it in your book it's not about numbers right right right, right? so five, five, five is a great thing um, I wanted to ask a, a question um, you're, you are the uh, founder you and um, Candace and Lynn your mom of uh, truckers against trafficking. Did you notice uh, any trafficking going on in El Salvador? Not that I was aware of. I'm sure it was happening. Um, I've certainly heard stories since then. Um, I uh, Human trafficking was not on my radar when I lived down there. I had never heard of it. I didn't know that slavery still existed um, at that time in my life. I did not know. Um, certainly there is a horrible trafficking problem within the Central American countries because they're underdeveloped, because of the gang situation, uh, young girls, vulnerable ones in, in poverty, um, et cetera, they fall into these traps really easily and get trafficked um, within brothels of Central America as well as into the United States and other areas. Um, but I did not see it there. And I know that we've had some big busts in um, Virginia, the Virginia area, specifically with MS-13 trafficking girls, teenagers typically, young teenagers, 13, 14-year-olds, that they're trafficking. Um, but I did not know about that at that point in my life. Okay, so when when you were associating with um, 
the gang members, they never discussed uh, any of that or anything like that. No, I mean, I definitely was an outsider with them. I was not, They, I mean, the ones that slipped up and would tell me anything were ones that were sort of um, not the leaders of the gang. There was a tight-lippedness. Um, the one time that Ghost put that knife to my throat and she was going to kill me, I got too close to a gang meeting, and in the gang meetings they discuss who they're going to hit next and, you know, sort of gang business. And she was the lookout, and I apparently walked too close to me. I didn't know they were having a meeting. I walked too close to it, and she had pinned me up against the wall. So I definitely would not have been spared had I known too much. So oh, yeah. I I am sure. So it was definitely just on a personal level, um, your your interactions with them. Right, right. It was, here was somebody that cared about them, here is somebody that was asking about their lives, and sometimes they would just say, why do you talk to us? It does not make sense that you talk to us. And they were curious too, you know, and then when... I'd sort of dispelled the myth of all Americans being super rich. Then they, they could take me as I was and listen to me instead of seeing me as maybe a mark, somebody to get some money off of. Um, they would just, okay, she actually wants to be my friend. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be your friend. Like, I'm going to take her at her word. But it was definitely a, a more personal level with me and them. Well, well, it's a great book, great stories. Uh, we're talking with Kyla Lieberg of, uh, with her book, My Life Crazy, available at Amazon.com. Let's grab a caller here real quick from Illinois, area code 309. Uh, go ahead. Welcome to the show. Hi. Thank you for uh, joining me to the show. This is Eddie Gichui from uh, Bloomington, Illinois. Oh, hi, Eddie. Hey, how you doing? I'm good. Hey, Eddie. Great. Hey, just wanted to say that uh, this is a great show. I, I first met Kyla at the Mid America Truck Show and then again at the first annual trucking social media convention in Tunica. And just by meeting her and talking with her, you would never know that she has such great experience in uh, <laughs> in that kind of world. I know. You know that, that is such a dangerous mission. You wouldn't take her uh, from you know to do such a dangerous thing. I wouldn't do it myself. So it, it takes I wouldn't either. <laughs> so Kyla, congratulations. That that's that's very that's very good. I had a couple questions for you. And uh the first I mean, where do you get such courage from? How did you how did what came about what came over you that you would take such a mission? I know it has to come from within, from somewhere in, in your past life. And uh second question, how did that experience prepare you for the mission that you're continuing here? We know that you're pretty active in the Truckers Against Trafficking. That's a great program that I support a lot. Uh, I just want to hear your story. There's a lot more to it, and I, I wanted to let you know that I have ordered your book. It's on the way. Hopefully it can get here quick enough that I can read it. Well, I hope so, too. Um, I would say that, you know, I was raised in a family where we were always told by my parents that we were here on earth for a reason greater than ourselves, greater than just um, providing for our own families. Like there was just something more and that we needed to explore those things no matter what. Um, I don't feel that when I was down there I was particularly brave. I, Like I said, looking back now, I'm like, wow, I was sort of insane to be doing what I was doing. But definitely at the time... 
I didn't feel like, I just felt like I was living where I wanted to be living. I definitely have sort of an adventurous spirit. And so I was, I just wanted to be in El Salvador. Um, I don't think I, I mean, when I would hear the stats, you know, at the time El Salvador had the highest homicide rate per capita in the world. And I just, I thought that was amusing. Like I was like, oh, look, we have the highest homicide rate. But I don't think it was like (laughs) registering with me necessarily. Um, I just think that I knew, I had peace about what I was doing. And so maybe it was better that I didn't know I was being brave. Um, Maybe it was better that I didn't know that I was taking risks, et cetera. I really just was having fun and living and getting exhausted doing that work and always being out on the street, but really feeling fulfilled. Um, They were two of the best years of my life, hands down. Um, How it has prepared... Yes, sorry. Now, I have to say that was, uh, you know, extremely courageous, especially going there without even speaking Spanish. You mentioned a little earlier that you you came to learn the language a lot later on. Uh, that, that, to me, is just, you know, brave, you know braveness of the highest uh, caliber, you know, just going out on a limb. Uh, did you have to get a translator? How did that work? Well, no, I had, um, I knew, like, three basic Spanish verbs, and I had just, like, a list of vocabulary, so pantomiming and that, um, but I learned it pretty darn fast. I mean, when there's nobody speaking English to you, you you pre- you adapt pretty quickly to the local language because otherwise you're going to get lost and you're going to not eat and you're not going to know where to go. So um, I learned that pretty fast, and I made a ton of mistakes. But the people, as I said, were very patient with me, and they would teach me. They just, okay, you really don't want to ever say that again. Oh, okay. <laughs> so you just... <laughs> everyone in the room. Okay, thanks for sharing. So, you know, and then yeah. the gangs taught me all of their gang slang. And then, um, so my Spanish is distinctly Salvadoran Spanish, and it is definitely littered with some street talk um, because that's what that's who I was hanging out with. So, is it perfect? <laughs> no. Can I write in Spanish well? No. Um, but I can I can communicate pretty darn well. Um, how did this lead me to truckers against trafficking? I think that just goes to a sense of justice. Um, we were raised like that, as I said, by my parents. And my dad was a lawyer, um, my a, a defense attorney. My mom is a heavy justice seeker. Uh, we were just raised that, and I think we were all born with an inherent sense of justice, and then it just my experiences in El Salvador, sort of seeing the injustice that people lived with on a daily basis, seeing the discrimination, um, living it firsthand, seeing that stuff, like it just honed that already their characteristic. Like it, it just made it sharper. And so when I learned about human trafficking and when my sisters, my mom, when we learned about human trafficking, it wasn't a, a question of, oh, that's a horrible thing. We said, what are we going to do to fix it? Like, what are we going to do to change it? And that's when we we started Truckers Against Trafficking. And there was the, just we need to do something, a, sort of, a sense of urgency, a sense of we must get in on this. If we know about it, we can't ignore it. If we know that it's happening, we need to do something about it. And I try to live that out in every aspect of my life, whether it's with my students at school 
or um, with my child or with my friends in El Salvador still who need help or, um, you know, people that I meet that they're living under some sense of injustice. Like, I, I will fight for them, and, and I will do what I can within my power to to right the wrongs. It, it's kind of like, um, you know, what we and so many others uh, do for the trucking industry, uh, the injustices. It's kind of like that same chord that gets, you know, you read something and something happens inside of you where it's not just, oh, what a shame. It's exactly what you said. What are we going to do about it? Right, absolutely. And that's what motivates, um, that's what motivates us and I'm sure you too. I mean that that's just the whole the whole core of it. All right. Uh, all right, thanks Eddie. Appreciate it. Let's go real quick uh the time here allowed. Let's run jump up to a caller from Georgia, area code seven zero six. Go ahead. Uh is that me? That's you. That's David. I I I know his voice. <laughs> hey, this is David Harris. Man, I'm I'm loving this program. And I'm, uh, I tell you, I, I met uh, Kyla and Tunica, and uh, it was a pleasure meeting her and listening to this show. I'm ordering the book. Uh, you, I mean, you see this smiling little blind lady and always so exuberant. And yeah, don't mess with her. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I can see that right now. Uh, but, yeah, she's a special person, and uh, God bless her for what she does. Well, you'll love the book. I couldn't put it down. It's just, uh, you know, and I, I'm not giving away too much on the show, but uh, it's, it'll uh, uh, it'll keep your attention, put it that way. Well, I I read a lot of books. I'm a big reader, so I'm going to look forward to getting this book and reading it and following, uh, you know, and I just... Uh, I think she has given a lot of her life to supporting a lot of different causes, uh, human trafficking and working through, uh, you know, God to reach a lot of people and a lot of kids, and there's not many people like her. And I just hope she uh, she has a blessed Christmas and uh, everything. I think she's she- a... She's an inspiration to a lot of people. Um, well, yes, yes. Yeah, a- a- including all of us. Yeah, well, appreciate it, David, and and uh, yeah, I'm glad you're getting the book. I hope everybody will get the book. It's just um, it, it's it's just a good read. That's all there is to it. And listen, got to take a quick break. When we return, we'll wrap it up here, and we'll talk about how these experiences. Well, we've already kind of touched on. Uh, Eddie's question on how it led to truckers against trafficking, but um, uh, we'll come right back to wrap it up here with our guest, Kyla Lieberg, and we'll catch up on some news on what's new with truckers against trafficking. So hang with us, and we'll be right back. You're listening to Truth About Trucking live on Blog Talk Radio. Alan Smith will be right back. Tell me what they're going to do when the big rigs 
Hey everybody, Alan Smith here with Truth About Trucking Live on Blog Talk Radio. Have you been driving a big rig for a while now and considering starting your own business as an owner-operator? Well, Lone Mountain Truck Leasing offers the best lease purchase plan in the industry. With a small down payment and monthly payments around $1,000 or less, you make the monthly payment and when the final payment is made, they hand over the title. It really is that simple. There is no big balloon payment at the end, and secondly, the truck is yours, not a lease plan under one truck and company. So if becoming an owner-operator is your goal, do it the right way. Do it the best way. Contact Lone Mountain Truck Leasing on the web at LoneMountainTruck.com or give them a call toll-free at 866-512-5685. That's LoneMountainTruck.com. And be sure to tell them that you heard about them on Truth About Trucking Live. As drivers and motor carriers face stricter guidelines from within the industry, it's never been more important to stay up to date on the ever-changing regulations and, most importantly, to always operate in compliance with those safety standards. Trans Products and Trans Services is a full-service transportation material compliance supply and regulatory service provider in business since 1957. For over 50 years, Trans Products and Trans Services has been working for drivers and motor carriers and assuring that you are always current and in compliance with all FMCSA regulations. So you'll have an entire regulatory agency working just for you. From logbook auditing to driver qualifications, file management, fuel tax and UCR filings, permit applications, on-site compliance assistance, and excellent technical service, Trans Products and Trans Services will provide the what, when, why, and how to comply without total interruption of your daily operation. So for more information on how you can have Trans Products and Trans Services working for you, give them a call at 1-800-367-9100. That's toll-free, 1-800-367-9100, or find them on the web at transproducts.com. All right, we're back talking with Kyla Lieberg about her book, My Life Crazy. And, Kyla, we already kind of touched on uh, how this kind of led into uh, uh, Truckers Against Trafficking. Eddie kind of beat me to the punch there. But I uh, don't want to keep you too long. I know you're busy and everything, and you have work tomorrow. I, let, what's what's new with Truckers Against Trafficking that you can share with us? Well, um, in November we put out the press release that, or Pilot Flying J put out the press release that they are training all of their employees with our materials, with our training video, and they're also going to have our posters, and um, they've made little table tents for the truckers' lounges in all of their shops as well, and so that's really exciting to have a big national travel plaza chain on board with uh, TAT, partnering with TAT and spreading the word, and we also some um, hopefully soon big news about some other uh, some big carriers that will also be training, but I can't give any details on that right now. But definitely TAT is growing, and we're seeing a lot of truckers make phone calls in and get interested and get their window decals. And if anybody wants a window decal for their truck or wants a wallet card, they're free. You just have to email us at tat 
com, and we will get those sent out to you. And um, we just hope to see, like, the whole road filled with the human trafficking hotline number because truckers obviously go everywhere, and we'd like to see that, that message spread. So TAT's doing great. I mean, we could not be more happy with the support that we're getting from the trucking industry. It's it's fabulous. And what is that um, national hotline number? Um, I mean, I know it, but... (laughs) It's 1-888-373-7888. And uh, it's an anonymous call. We just ask that you identify yourself as a trucker. If you see anybody underage being prostituted or you see evidence of pimp control, something just seems wrong to you, call in and give as many details as you can about your location, and um, hopefully someone will be rescued as a result. And not to call the police, because um, from what we're reading, the police really don't know what to do with a situation like that. Well, the database, um, the human trafficking hotline, they have contacts in not all cities, so I can't promise that they won't ask you to call the local police, but they do... Uh, when you call the database, first off, it goes into a national database, and so when the police don't respond or there's an issue, then obviously um, there will be a record of that. Um, and we also want truckers to get some recognition as being part of the solution to this uh, issue. But uh, a lot of times the human trafficking network has contacts with local police departments and FBI in the area who are trained in human trafficking, and so they'll view those girls as victims instead of criminals and actually be able to provide the the proper help for them and get them into the right hands uh, for rehabilitation and, and things of that nature. Um, sometimes they don't have those contacts. They're still building their database, but um, and then they'll just simply say, call the local authorities. We've got this down now. We'll follow up on it, um, and and then you just sort of... Obviously, some police are not trained, um, but we're definitely, Polaris is working on getting funding for um, law enforcement across the country. It's just, you know, when it comes to money being allocated, that's a long haul for Congress to get that those types of things taken care of. Sure. Sure. Well, you're doing a great job over there. Uh, uh, well, let's try to grab one more caller here real quick from uh, Pennsylvania, area code 717. Go ahead. Hello, uh, this is Fred Shepard. Kyla, I just want to, I'm extremely impressed. You are doing a wonderful job. I just wanted to say, give you a pat on the back and say, keep it up. You, you're doing wonderful. Thank you very much. Oh, hi, Fred. How are you? Uh, doing good, doing good. Yeah, it was a great show tonight. Um, very inspiring. Um, you know, it makes you realize that, uh, there's a lot more that you can do no matter what you are doing and you think you're doing enough and you you just sit back and say, well, okay, I probably could be doing even more. Well, Kyla, one last question. Are any plans to go back to El Salvador? Um, I hope to be able to visit. It's um, It's not on my agenda right at this moment. Um, once Gato passed, that sort of closed a chapter for me for a while. I definitely am helping some friends out in El Salvador. Uh, Some of my fellow teachers here put a girl through college down there. Um, And so I have my contacts, but I'm trying to use my money in that way versus Mm -hmm. spending on a trip down there. 
But I do plan one of these days to get back there and visit Gato's grave and, and see my friends again. So um, it's in the future, not right now, but definitely I would hope in the next 10 years to, to be able to get back down there and see everybody. Okay. Well, I could keep going for several more hours. It was just a great book. But, but uh, listen, really appreciate it. I know you got to go. Th- thanks for joining us this evening. Thank you so much. Thanks. I appreciate it. Have a good night. All right, you too. And um, uh, so, I mean, listen, uh, I, I know a lot of you drivers out there love a good read, and when you're shut down for a day or weekend or perhaps on your 34-hour restart, My Life Crazy is a great way to spend your downtime. And there are a few shockers in the book that we didn't discuss because you'll just have to read the book to find out. It would be a great gift for that reader and the family for the holidays, and you can link directly to the book at Amazon.com or Tate Publishing right from the show page. It's a great book. Hope you check it out. Uh, Donna, any, uh, any final comments you like? Uh, no, I think, we, I think we covered them all earlier. Um, I just look forward to next week's uh, show with uh, uh, Lindsay Keller is going to be on. Yeah, and, and you know, we've, we've talked a lot about the lifestyle of the Salvadoran people and the lifestyle of the professional trucker pales in comparison, and you'll know what I mean when you read the book, but still the trucker lifestyle can often lead drivers to need a little extra boost and stamina to keep that rig rolling, but they want a boost that will be healthy. So wouldn't it be great if you could find an energy drink that can not only give you the ultimate energy but comes with a health boost as well, and you can do that with 8-hour day energy ultimate energy drink with a health booth and it's not just another energy drink it's a healthy alternative eight hour day energy advises that it is the perfect all-in-one nutritional and energy supplement that is packed with over 140 nutritional ingredients it's all packed in a two ounce bottle to help boost your immune system supports health uh, heart health uh, aids in eye maintenance nervous system as well as mental alertness and all this and more with no jitters or crashes. So visit their website to grab your supply and for more information at 8hourdayenergy.com. That's the number 8-hour, H-O-U-R, dayenergy.com. It's made for the long haul, so make the switch today, 8hourdayenergy.com. And as Donna mentioned, our final show for 2011 will be on Thursday, December 15th at 7 p.m. Eastern Time with our guest, Lindsay Kaler, the social media marketing manager for the Pilot Travel Centers. And do you know that in 2009, the population on Facebook surpassed that of the United States? In fact, if Facebook was a nation, it would be the third largest in the world, and still many within the trucking industry are falling behind on the usage of social media outlets and tools. So we're going to talk about the role of social media within the trucking industry and how it's used, not just for pure business practices, but to build a community of relationships, as in the case with our guests and Pilot Travel Center. So, Lindsay Kaler, our special guest next time as we wind down 2011 and move forward into the new year. So be sure to bookmark us and add us to your favorites so you can be notified of our show schedule. And thanks for joining us this evening. And, and uh, Kyla Lieberg, this is for you and for the children of El Salvador. Going to take you back to the land and the people that you love with a Salvadoran song about overcoming your adversities, a song about hope. Here's La Sombra performing El Sapo, so get ready to dance. Until next time, for Truth About Trucking Live, I'm Alan Smith. Drive safe, and thanks for listening.
tapito la vamos a bailar, la cumbia del tapito la vamos a gozar, la cumbia del tapito la vamos a bailar, un tapito y otro tapito, un tapito y otro nomás, un tapito y otro tapito, un tapito y otro nomás, bríncale para arriba, bríncale otra vez, bríncale para arriba, bríncale otra vez, bríncale para arriba, bríncale otra vez. Bríncale para arriba, bríncale otra vez. Un paso para adelante y otro para atrás. 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 Un paso para adelante y otro para atrás Un paso para adelante y otro para atrás 